Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database, with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts, with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news, thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Hello. I'm Douglas Ginsburg, a judge on the United States Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm here for the Antitrust Code Books podcast series um, with uh, my guest, Judge Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in, in Chicago, uh, Illinois. Um, I'm also the co-editor, uh, along with Judge Tim Ike of the European Court of Human Rights, of the recently published book, Judicial Review in Competition Cases, which surveys the subject across 14 jurisdictions. And um, Judge Wood was kind enough to contribute the chapter on review of competition cases in the United States. So this is a great opportunity to discuss with her the some of the things that she raised in her, uh, in her chapter in the book, and maybe even uh, beyond that. Diane, welcome. It's so good to see you. It's been a while, but um, we've always managed to come together one way or another. Yes, we have, and and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, your chapter is uh, formidable, I must say, really formidable tour d'horizon of uh, the subjects uh, arising when we think about review of competition cases uh, in the U.S., uh, and using just a few uh, strategically selected examples, you bring home so many uh, important points with, with real um, uh, efficiency, uh, I must say. So um, I'd like to raise uh, uh, some of the subjects. I'll take them seriatim as they appear in the, in the chapter, um, but um, uh, rather than, than skip around. But I think they're all so interesting. We could do it in any, in any order. Um, you, you noted in the chapter that um, that antitrust litigation in the U.S. is expert-driven. And um, I wonder if you could just elaborate on that for our listeners. Certainly. Um, antitrust litigation in the United States is normally initiated by either one of the enforcement agencies or by a private party because the statutes give a very generous private right of action. But the underlying content of antitrust cases is anything but universally understood, uh, trying to figure out what is a restraint of trade of the sort that the laws prohibit uh, is no simple task. Take, take cartels, which you would think of as the paradigmatic antitrust violation. Well, Competitors getting together to agree on things are sometimes acting within the scope of the law, and sometimes they are acting outside the scope of the law. You need an expert to tell you, or at least you need to somehow be able to understand which collaborations are productive, efficiency-enhancing, useful collaborations, and which are simply efforts to extract rents from people and to... Um, restrict price, restrict output in a way that is that is privately useful. So just to take a quick example, uh, we're all happy when we buy an, elect an electrical device 
that we can plug the thing into the wall no matter where. We don't want competition in wall plugs. We want an agreed standard. Well, that's something that people who make appliances have to do. So it's a perfectly legitimate, useful, all good words thing to, to have happen. Whereas, you know, if during this recent uh, spate of labor difficulties in the car market, if GM and Ford had said, oh, what the heck, let's just agree on prices for, for cars, we would have said, no, you know, you can't do that. And in fact, there have been very interesting expansions of antitrust into labor markets, but that's a different topic. But anyway, in, in understanding the meaning of the actual prohibitions in the laws, expert information is essential, in my opinion. Um, well, I say these are economic experts, PhD economists testifying and proposing very different conclusions, of course, one for each side, uh, usually the government, but it could be a private plaintiff on one side and the um, one or more defendants on the other. Um, and uh, I wonder whether um, you've become familiar with or even uh, even seen uh, a trial court, a first instance court that has used the so-called hot tub uh, as a way of uh, of expediting the, the cross-examination. I have not seen the hot tub personally, and I will just say for those who are listening, it's the system pioneered in Australia where the experts just get to ask each other questions directly so it doesn't get mediated through the lawyer for one party or the other. The Australians love it. They say it really helps reveal the assumptions on which the expert opinion was made, the methodology the expert used, you know, perhaps other alternative methodologies that might have been better. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, I think it would be fun to see that, but it's not, um, there, there are quite a few inconsistencies between that system and the way trials are normally done in the U.S. We, we use our experts as part of our adversary system. That, that might not even be smart, but that's what we do. Now, in our system, under the rules, um, a first instance judge could appoint a court expert, right, who reports right. to the court and is neutral as between the parties. Um, and your colleague, Judge Posner, several years ago, lamented the the uh, failure of, of our trial judges to do that. That's very rare, I guess. Um, do you think it would be a good idea to have yet another economist in the mix? <laughs> you know, it's hard for me to give an across-the-board answer to that question because I I think what Judge Posner was rightly pointing out is that for the district court trial level judge who has his or her first antitrust case land on the desk, you know, some of them are going to be much better prepared for that event than others. If you've spent your whole life in a U.S. attorney's office prosecuting you know, drug cases, this is going to seem like very different subject matter. And the idea of the master would be to have a person not replacing the party's experts, but a person who is able to assimilate what the party's experts have said and give the judge a neutral report, obviously available for the parties to make their comments on. Nobody's talking about uh, secret reports, although I'll say a word about that in a minute, because in some ways that happens. But he, I think he may be right that there should not be quite the presumption against doing that. It's expensive, no doubt, but so is antitrust litigation. You know, if you're going to have the uh, litigation going forward, maybe having 
is broken down for the judge so that the judge will know what questions to ask, what what's really pertinent, what is not pertinent might be helpful. The only reason, and I'll say what I was alluding to when I say most reports are public if you're using a Rule 53 uh, special master, but we all, we judges, you, myself, and everyone, we have our law clerks too, and, and sometimes I hire law clerks who have very sophisticated economic backgrounds. Um, and so I do not share with the public what they may say to me in oral discussions or write up for me in bench memos and the like. I don't think I'm telling any school to say that, pardon me, when we had the Microsoft litigation in my court in 2021, we considered hiring a court expert to familiarize us with the technology. And of course, we then uh, uh, would find somebody who was neutral. We had done so. And uh, and then proposed this to the parties. And um, they they insisted that they would have to be present uh, whenever we're talking to the court-appointed expert. It became so cumbersome an idea that we just gave it up. And, and, and it turned out to, I think, the, what we needed to know was was digestible for an average person. It wasn't that arcane. Sometimes the economics can be pretty arcane, as you as you well know. Well, I, I think this leads naturally to a question that's just a little bit um, uh, orthogonal to uh, to the chapter, and that is to ask whether we ought to have a specialized court for competition cases, or maybe competition and other economic uh, cases. Of course, the United Kingdom's had the Competition Appeals Tribunal for about 25 years. The Cour de Cassation in Paris has an economic division with the judges who consistently hear not just competition, but other economic cases. I think that would be um, advisable. I have been a skeptic of specialized courts, even including the specialization that we see in the federal circuit. It's not really a specialized court, by the way. I mean, it's a court that has limited jurisdiction because their jurisdiction, of course, extends to patent cases, and that's what everybody thinks about. But they also do international trade cases. They do government contract cases. They do government and employment cases. So they're a court that we've used when we've thought there needs to be just one national voice on things. I think observing the history of that court, particularly in patent cases, shows us that while there may be advantages to doing that, there are also costs. Uh, they don't have as much uh, collective experience as the regional courts of appeals. And I have been an advocate in the federal circuit situation of just what it seems to me not the biggest step to take, but to say, just as we have many areas where you have the choice between going to the DC circuit and going to the regional circuit, FTC cases being one example, uh, I think you should just give people the choice between going to the regional circuit or going to the federal circuit. Those who want that expertise can go there as they do with the DC circuit and in other cases, those who would rather not don't have to. And, and you can cure claim and issue preclusion problems in a different way. So I've asked myself, would this federal circuit model work for competition cases I think it would not work well. Um, I, I'm just not so sure that the record of the district court judges across the country or the courts of appeals across the country is so bad. And I think it helps the, the U.S. Supreme Court if there's a very well-reasoned opinion that's come out of the Tenth Circuit on, on a particular issue of antitrust law and there's another one 
that comes out of the third circuit. Actually, the circuits learn from one another in that way, and also the Supreme Court can decide which ones are worth taking. So my my preference, despite, I mean, I will concede there are some, some advantages of specialization, but I think the costs outweigh them. The only one piece of empirical literature with which I'm familiar, and that was by Wright and Bay, and they looked at um, the reversal rates for um, uh, or trial court judges in competition cases, uh, dividing, comparing those who had had some economic training with those who had not. And their results showed that the judges who had some economic training handled simple cases better than other judge, than other judges did. But when the cases got complex, uh, they did not. It was, you know, you can't train someone to anticipate a complex case. You have to be educated while the case is going on. In the case, yeah. Way. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's because each case is so so different in many ways. And um, you know, can I just kind well, of just add, I mean, the antitrust bar rightly understands that, that competition cases can be very complex. But if you go over to mm. the environmental bar, they're going to tell you the same thing. And if you're going to go over to the patent bar, they're going to tell you the same thing on down the line. And I think this the question you posed really is a big uh, judiciary design question for the entire gamut of cases that we have in our country. Well, it's certainly uh, obvious with regard to patents uh, that, that that too would be a candidate. Yeah. Uh, for a specialized a tribunal of some sort. Yeah. Um, well, uh, putting uh, putting that uh, aside, you you commented in the uh, in the uh, in your chapter that um, U.S. courts, I think particularly courts of appeals, but uh, um, are um, quite keenly concerned with the substance of the law and with uh, and rather bold in shaping it. Uh, when they feel the need to do so. Uh, now, as I know you're familiar with the distinction overseas between judicial review and full merits review. And um, uh, and in judicial review, which, of course, your court and mine have cases, administrative law cases, and it's not full merits review, it's judicial review. Right. And then we have cases coming from our first instance trial courts. And, of course, on the law, it is full merits review. Um are you describing something in between in competition cases? Well, there there is this funny in-between ground that never manages to settle down, and that's what I'll call the mixed question of law and fact. So in some ways, if you're asking, is practice X something that falls within you know the prohibition uh, of of things that are restraints of trade, that's that's a factual question. What is practice X? How does it operate in the market? How many other people are doing it? I mean, there, there are lots of empirical questions that will go into that. And then we have this legal concept that we're applying to it. And the way courts of appeals review these mixed questions really depends, I think, on what type of question it is. I had actually lengthy debates with my former colleague, Judge Posner, about this. But the way the Supreme Court seems to have settled down is if this mixed question has some constitutional dimension, then there's going to be something closer to full judicial review of it as opposed to just, you know, um, full merits review, I'll say. Uh, if it's 
a statutory question or a common law question was a certain practice negligent. You know, did did somebody breach a contract? Um, th in those instances, we back off and we give deference to our first instance fact finders because they presumably have a more comprehensive view of the facts and we'll give a lighter touch. We'll give maybe more a judicial review model touch for it. So where does antitrust fit in this? The Supreme Court has flowery language in some cases calling the antitrust laws the Magna Carta of free enterprise or our constitutional uh, source of law for economic matters. I think that's mostly metaphorical. It, it's a statute. And in fact, I looked at a little foreword I wrote many years ago, it must have been the 80s, of a compilation that was being done by Congress of all the legislation they've ever passed about the antitrust laws. And I remember thinking initially, what are we talking about here? You know, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. But it turns out they, as you well know, whether it's soft drink bottlers or newspapers or parts government, I mean, Congress jumps in and tinkers when it wants to. It is a legislative area. And sometimes we learn when Congress thinks about something and then they don't tinker. They'll think of all the Illinois brick repealer statutes and they came and they went and they came and they went, but none of them ever crossed the finish line. True. Although I think 30 some states uh, did legislate um, on the subject. Yeah. And so, so strongly objecting to the Supreme Court's holding that the an indirect purchaser could not recover. Um, and so the result, of course, is that in most states now, indirect purchasers do recover by appending a state law claim to their federal claim. Well, um, the one of the things the courts has said among the flowery language, if you will, is uh, that, this, this, that the Sherman Act is a common law statute in the sense that restraint of trade was a common law concept and phrase. And that the court, the Congress didn't mean to freeze the content of that when it put it into the legislation so that the courts could continue to uh, evolve their decisions with regard to new economic problems that arise, new new technologies for being anti-competitive. Now, right, I mean, today's concern is algorithmic pricing, for instance, which didn't exist 10 years ago even. <laughs> so, uh, so that inherently, I think, gives the courts um, a somewhat in the U.S. a somewhat um, greater role for shaping the law than would otherwise be the case, and and it's you know on the Sherman Act, it's I think it's rare that the Congress um, changes anything in the Sherman Act. They might create exceptions and variations. Uh, I have an article about to come out in early '24 with Joshua Wright uh, called "Reimagining Our Antitrust Institutions." And um, it turns out that there are about 30 organizations in the government that are authorized either to decide uh, or to take a, or required to take into account competition in their decision making. Sometimes they have to refer to the antitrust division or actually the attorney general who then asks the antitrust division. Sometimes they just make the decisions themselves. So it's a much more uh, tangled web <laughs> than I realized when I set out to uh, to do this. Um, and sometimes it's very unsatisfactory as with airline mergers and the Congress took it away from the Department oh, of Transportation. They did, did such a bad job. They thought <laughs> that, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, no. Um, well, 
to some degree, these are policy questions that 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 come before the courts, right? I mean, economic policy, if you will, competition policy, um, and maybe that's what makes it make serves as an invitation to be a little more um, active. Now, you give a great example in the broadcast music case, if you would uh, maybe restate that for our listeners. Well, it's it's very interesting because up until the time this case was decided, um, which was 1979, people just said, boy, if there's one fixed star in the universe, you know, it's when competitors get together and perhaps directly or perhaps through a common selling agent, they fix the prices for their products. If they are in fact competitors and they really are um, engaged in the production of, of, of products that are um, competitive with one another. Broadcast music comes along and the Supreme Court through Justice White says not so fast because sometimes there could be a common selling agent more or less as here that is efficiency enhancing. And there's some language in the opinion that says actually because the, the point was could composers of copyrighted music get together and create a thing called a blanket license where they would sell just a big packaged product to you know, a radio station or a TV station or, or a movie theater or whatever, a bar that wants to uh, have music in the background. And that's what these two organizations, ASCAP and BMI, had been doing. Highly efficient because individual contracting with each little you know, maybe like one Billy Joel song. So, you know, you, you contract with him, then you have another song that's that's a Taylor Swift and you contract with her. I mean, honestly, it would be a mess. And so the court said, yes, they're competitors. It, it, it didn't buy the idea that just because it's copyrighted, it's automatically unique, which was, of course, very sensible. Lots of substitution does go on in this in this industry. And so they allow this common selling agent to operate. And they say it's it's a new product and we need to ask whether the practice is one that's usually going to be bad or whether there are some efficiencies to it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what it said. And that I think was a very sound decision, but it made the job of the district court judges quite a bit harder. And it was, I think, a big piece in, in the progression of the courts. I, I would argue, and I think Doug would agree with me, that we once had some fairly predictable rules that we called per se rules. And the more we've learned about the economics of various industries, the more qualified those rules to become to the point that they're really not per se rules anymore, most of them. Uh, many of them are, are really, let's look at all the facts and circumstances uh, with the idea that market power and other kinds of um, broader considerations are what we're what we're worried about, but um, it makes the job much harder for the judge. And if I could add a word about the uh, common law nature of the statute, it's that idea is in some tension with the so-called originalism movement. You know, at the time the Sherman Act is passed, they're worried about some things that maybe we don't worry about anymore, and they weren't worried about some things that we do worry about more uh, extensively. So there are two ways of solving that problem. One is the way that we've adopted, which allows ultimately the Supreme Court to make sure that the 
content of the law stays up to date under the broad umbrella of the language. The other, much more common in the world, is that you're going to have administrative agencies that will study what's going on. They'll issue guidelines. They'll prosecute or not. They'll they'll um, maybe in other ways keep the law up to date, but they do it more administratively. And probably to your article's point, if an agency, whether it's the competition directorate of the European Union or whether it's a comparable agency at the nation state level, they probably have some internal way of organizing what these 30 different agencies with input on competition implications are saying. Um, I, one, would, one would hope so. I can remember many in OC, OECD meetings where people said competition law is not exclusively the competition law. It is the competition aspects you know, of the transportation law or the postal services law or the whatever other law you're thinking of. You made this point about the our antitrust agencies um, evolving toward being administrative agencies as opposed to just uh, law enforcement, let's say. Um, by issuing guidelines, uh, and um, I, I I haven't seen that suggested before. I found that very a very interesting idea. Uh, and those guidelines, as as you know, acquired a good deal of um, respect among the first instance judges. They help organize their thinking. Uh, they give great guidance in, in many uh, uh, aspects of uh, of the issues. Um, and now um, they're being revised. Uh, in a way that is, I think, I think it's going to be a pretty significant departure from the trajectory that from the first guidelines in 1968 through the last fifth or so iteration in 2010. Um, how, do you think that will be an, introduce more uncertainty than we really want to have? You know, it's a tough question. I have, of course, watched from afar as the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division have taken on some of these revision projects. And maybe we should be specific. I mean, the merger guidelines, I think, have been those that have been most closely monitored and revised and fine-tuned over the years. They're looking like people are going to suggest pretty big changes in them. There are plenty of other guidelines too, whether they're horizontal competitors or healthcare law or other kinds of things. But the merger guidelines have been you know, the marquee guidelines. My private thought to myself about this is that it's fine to revise guidelines, but the agencies do not sit in a position where they're the principal uh place where antitrust content is articulated. That place is at the Supreme Court level because of the, because of the common law nature of the field that you mentioned. So if the Supreme Court is open to, I'll pick something, you know, something more like conglomerate liability, or if the Supreme Court is worried about platforms, or if the Supreme Court's worried about algorithms, they're going to be the ones with the last word. It's not going to be the agencies. Now, if the agencies can show how this revised view of things is actually embedded in solid antitrust policy as the court has recognized it, that's fine. That's one path. Another path, a more aggressive one, is to go to the Supreme Court and ask it to overrule a decision. 
that's not that's not my pay grade. You know, I can't overrule a decision. So if you bring me a case that depends on rejecting a particular Supreme Court precedent, you're going to lose, you know, because the court, we live in a hierarchical judicial system, right? Well, and the agencies have lost more cases than they used to do uh, because right. of the changes that they're that they're making. Uh, but, but the but the dilemma here, uh, Diane, I think, is that um, merger cases don't get to the Supreme Court. The last one to be ruled on on the substance was in 1974, <laughs> and general um, dynamics. Yes, yes, yes. And so the uh, courts at our level, uh, yours and mine, and the other ten have been struggling with applying um, what was left of the case law that's been totally overtaken by the changes in the economic understanding uh, and reconciling them and sort of uh, adapting as best we can without without a leader, let's say. <laughs> um, yeah. And the agencies have supplied the intellectual leadership uh, through the guidelines. The merger guidelines are the most respected, I think. So, I, I mean, if there is a case that get, I don't see how it'll get the Supreme Court because it takes too long. And as you know, cases can't wait on two or three years to, to be resolved. You know, in, in Europe, the, 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 the case, even after the deal has been abandoned, the parties, can, either party can pursue the matter to the European Court of Justice. And that's what General Electric did after the Honeywell uh, decision. Right. I remember. So they could get some, some, some learning, some guidance from the European Court of Justice that we cannot get from our Supreme Court on mergers. It's a rather dire situation, really. Well, well, it is, because what you're alluding to is if the parties have genuinely abandoned the transaction, at whatever court it happens to be lodged at that moment, that court is going to say, this is now a moot dispute. You know, We do not have the authority anymore to render what would essentially be an advisory opinion. Uh, and that's just yeah. a, 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 you know, a, an 18th century quirk of the scope of the jurisdiction of all of the federal courts that's been there since whichever year you want to pick, 1789, perhaps. Um, and it, it is too bad. And it's one of the things that prompted me to suggest, and I, I, don't, I don't think this is unique to me, but to suggest that um, the agencies in the merger area in particular are acting as administrative agencies. Their decisions are, are de facto uh, unreviewable a lot of the time because of the complexity of getting the financing for transactions lined up and the time frame that people have to operate under. It, it's we we've had an, we don't even get that many merger cases at the court of appeals level. Maybe you get more than we do, but I don't think so. Uh, we no. had I was on a, a on a hospital merger case a few years back that my colleague David Hamilton wound up writing the opinion on. And there is a lot of learning about hospital mergers, especially that the FTC has put out. And we certainly read it all. And and I think you'll, I mean, I think our, our opinion was quite consistent with what the agencies had said. It's certainly useful. We, in the DC circuit, uh, my court, because we have so many administrative agency cases from all the agencies, or many of them, um, we get many more competition issues coming not from the antitrust agencies, but from the sectoral regulators. Mm -hmm. So we, we get our share of exercise in the competition arena, uh, but it's sort of been a sideshow uh, rather than uh, rather than the Sherman Act. Um, well, it's this is a dilemma. Um, I mean, working with this outdated body of law from the 1960s, uh, really, 
Um, well, um, there are a couple of other things. Are, oh, yes. So you just mentioned the difficulties of keeping the case alive for two or three years and the, and the cost and all of that. So I, I don't know if you've encountered this yet, but increasingly major antitrust cases are being financed by entrepreneurs, litigation funders, um, who have the capacity to pursue a case that might otherwise go uh, un, unlitigated. Um, and I, I'm rather inclined to think that's a good development that it enables people to vindicate their 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 rights and get damages that wouldn't have been possible before. Not really. I mean, actually, I just recently attended a very interesting conference at the University of Chicago on the topic of litigation funding. And the people who were there, many of them were from these companies that are the litigation funders. Uh, and some were people who've simply used this or in some other way. I'm actually not sure why I was there. I, other people were far more expert than I. But in any event, uh, it turns out that this is a topic that the uh, Advisory Committee on Civil Rules of the Federal Judiciary has looked at. The litigation funders, in my estimation, are acting a lot like contingency lawyers do in that they are making you know, a serious assessment of the likelihood of success that this particular case has with it, because they're not going to make any money, you know, just tossing dollars in the direction of any case that happens to come along. They need to win before there's going to be any pot of money that'll be the return on their investment. Uh, one thing that I wish they had talked about more at this conference was actually the the price, basically, you know, how, how much of a cut do they think they need to take in order to make this a, a, a rational investment to make? But the contingency lawyers are exactly the same. They, If they really have to finance the expert and, and the, all the studies and perhaps the accounting people and you know, the, the market studies, that's a lot of upfront money. And if there's no likely settlement or victory at the end of the line, they're just out that money. I think the litigation funders have a lot of confidence in their ability to assess what's likely to be a good case. Um, and so, I mean, I don't I don't approach this with any ex-ante hostility to the litigation funding. The biggest obstacle, I think, has been at the state Supreme Court level, what amounts to unauthorized practice of law. If you are the dollars, are you really dictating the strategic moves that the party is taking? in the litigation. They deny that they're doing that, but a lot of people are skeptical that if you've got that much skin in the game, are you really just going to sit off there and zip up your mouth and not say anything? I I don't know. I mean, I'm, that goes beyond my knowledge, but I do know that the state Supreme Courts have been very worried about uh, the unauthorized practice of law dimension of this. Yes, <clears throat> yes I'm, I, I know you're right. At the same time, the um, the limits on the authorized practice of law have been being are being relaxed as we go from one state to another. Uh, some now allow uh, non-lawyer partners um, and that sort of thing, which was would not have been allowed uh, even a few years ago. Uh, well, no, pardon me. Um, I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to lose this opportunity to uh, to. Uh, uh, Ask you about uh, at least uh, at least one other thing, um, and uh, and I've 
curious as to how you view this. In 1979, well, maybe 77 first, in Continental TV, the Supreme Court said the Sherman Act is a consumer welfare statute and put in a footnote uh, citing Robert Bork's book, uh, Antitrust Paradox. Paradox. And and seems since then um, to have pretty systematically overruled prior decisions that are inconsistent with that. Um, now, now there's a lot of uh, agitation about expressly taking account of of non-economic concerns, or I shouldn't say that, non-competition concerns in uh, agency decision making. Nothing radical has happened. But there's a good deal of talk about it, and, and some of the talk came from published articles by people who are now responsible for the decisions being made in the agencies. Uh, and so uh, some of them were quite uh, far afield, take account of uh, the effect of a practice on income inequality or the environment or a number of other things, uh, and some not so far removed, um, such as, um, as you referred to earlier, venturing into um, labor, uh, not just labor markets, but, and this is, I think, about to happen, evaluating a merger in part by regard, with regard to whether it would likely disemploy a large number of people, which in the past, I think we've thought about as an advantage, right? That reflected an efficiency. <laughs> and if it lowers the costs of production, that's good for consumers and it frees up those assets, those people to do other things. Um, but just by dipping a toe in the water, so far the agencies have not had good fortune in the in the, in the labor field. They haven't gone quite as far as I've suggested, just bringing cases involving labor price fixing, really, wage fixing. Um, do you think it's practical to, to go any further, to bring labor to the table in this area? Well, I mean, I've... I sat on a case where it was um, a case that presented a restriction in labor markets. It's a monopsony theory case where there was there were allegations that the um, at the buying end there was market power and that labor prices were being suppressed. Uh, and the antitrust laws have certainly always covered monopsony. It's a it, it's a yes. somewhat awkward fit with the with with the lay idea of what consumer welfare is, because monopsony might lead to lower prices if you're suppressing the price of an input. But we've always, certainly since the 1920s, at least, is the first case that I can think of was a major case in that respect. So I I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, let me just back up and say, I remember that footnote well from the Sylvania case. Um, and I remember... Uh, Judge Bork's book uh, quite well. I always regarded that book as more a policy argument than a real historical examination of the roots of the antitrust laws. My, like most legislation, if you go back and look at the legislative history, it's a hodgepodge. I mean, some people were worried about tariffs and some people were worried about, you know, being pushed out of business by the Standard Oil Trust and some people were worried about prices and whatever. There were there were quite a few things going on there. So it turns into a Rorschach test and and Judge Bork thought that emerging from all of that was a theme that you could really work with, what we call consumer welfare. There's a side debate about whether that really means just consumers or whether it means total welfare, but I'll put that to one side. Um, 
And I absolutely agree with you that the Supreme Court, once the Sylvania case had taken that step, systematically has followed through the logic of it to the point where I don't think there's much room for, say, a private plaintiff to swim upstream and say, we're going back to protecting small dealers and worthy men, to take the quote from the Trans-Missouri Freight decision. Um, and if a bunch of people go out of business because of this merger, maybe they weren't as efficient and we're not worried about mom and pop stores and we really don't think that much of the Robinson Patman Act. And you know, there, there are a whole lot of things that flow from that. You raise a fascinating question though, at the agency level, we have normally, we the courts, have normally kept our hands off exercises of prosecutorial discretion. So in the negative side, if a court, if DOJ or FTC decide we are um, not going to do something because of consumer or producer effects or fairness effects in society or whatever, there's no hook that we would have. They're now trying to push... I think the original understanding of the, the Sherman Act back to where they think that it started out, back to this kind of messy, a whole bunch of factors things, that's not intellectually neat, although it may be accurate. And so I'm not sure that this Supreme Court is going to be persuaded to go that way. But, you know, that's what they're trying. They're, tr they're trying to say, if you really want a law that reflects the original ideas that prompted the antitrust laws, that law is going to have these other elements to it. And of course, as you know, internationally, whether you look at Canada, whether you look at South Africa, whether you even look at the European Union, these elements of fairness to businesses and fair business practices do crop up in quite a few places. Well, yes, in South Africa, of course, it's in the statute, the number of factors that have to be considered. Right. Uh, and and the outrageous consequences yeah. uh, as a result of that. In in the um, Walmart uh, uh, mass mart case, the first instance uh, or the tribunal, not the tribunal, the uh, agency decision uh, was really quite uh, quite intrusive and would have required rehiring seven hundred people and a thirty percent local content law and all of that. But on appeal, it got slimmed down and made some sense. Uh, Notwithstanding the potential for doing making a mess, it really got straightened out, uh, <laughs> and so that's those seven hundred people now became just a preferential hiring list as they go forward, uh, which we do in labor cases uh, anyway. Sure. Uh, so um, yeah, well, the I, I don't know. I think the the, the legislative history is a mess, uh, as you suggested, but then the, the current uh, agitation for change has another factor, which I don't think we can write off. So so. Literally, and that is uh, the concern that very large firms have undue uh, or substantial um, political influence, um, which would certainly resonate with the legislative history. And as you know, but when Robert Kotovsky was chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, he made that an express concern, um, although I don't think it affected decision-making since those huge oil mergers all went through. Um, but... Uh, we don't really know much about political influence. We know something about lobbying, but lobbying expenditures are an, an input, not an output. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so unless you just say, well, big is bad, which we did once before, and it right. wasn't pretty results, uh, I don't know how to 
give any um, content to the concern. No, I, I agree with you. And it raises what's always been a concern of mine, um, whether it happens to be competition law or a different field. You can't ask every law to perform every function. I mean, there's, and, and that was the, I think, the persuasive argument for the consumer welfare focus on antitrust law and say, okay, this is this is what we're going to do. We're not going to try to be the second small business administration. We're not going to try to, um, you know, be the patent office. We're not going to try to do all these things. We're going to stay in our lane, as they say these days, and try to make sure that we have a competitive marketplace and that will itself toss out winners and losers. And they're always losers and competitive marketplaces. So that, I think, is um, one of the things that makes it difficult with this political influence argument. Are there concerns about undue political influence? Certainly. Look look at the debate that ensued after the Supreme Court decided the Citizens United case on campaign funding. Um, they, they grounded Citizens United in the First Amendment, so nobody's doing anything about it. But it was it was a serious concern, and I've heard people from all ends of whatever political spectra we have these days, and it's probably not just one, um, people saying this is a bad thing. But it's one thing, even if you agreed it was a bad thing, to say that it ought to be addressed, and quite another thing to say that you think the antitrust laws have to take it on along with everything else that they're taking on. So I guess I would think there's some value in specialization of legislation uh, along with specialization in, in products. And, and if these big firms are violating some actual law, then they need to be prosecuted by someone. But I'm not sure it's it's an antitrust violation. Well, well said, I must say. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, I'm really glad we got to touch on that. Um, I think our time is up, though, and I've enjoyed it enormously. So I want to thank you and remind our uh, listeners that uh, I've been talking with Judge Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit uh, Court of Appeals here in uh, in the U.S., uh, whose insights on judicial review are captured in her chapter of a, book, a recent book on judicial review published by Concurrence. Uh, I'm sure that our listeners found this absolutely, or at least your part of it, absolutely fascinating. And uh, I thank them for uh, for listening. Um, and I hope they'll listen for some of the other podcasts. By the way, we did one with Peter Freeman uh, a month or two ago, and he, he was terrific, as, as you have been. Diane, it's always great to be with you, even if it's remotely. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been about 40 years. Uh, that we've known it's been a while. I was going to say, it's been a minute. Yes, well, I look forward to the next time. And it's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you very much. So I'm here. Thank you, Diane. Okay, for now. Bye You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Loss and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.